We're continuing this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, last time, you may recall, we looked at Israel's demand for a human king in verses 1 to 5, and we saw that God responded to their demand by saying that they had rejected him. And so then we sought to understand in that sermon how their demand for a human king demonstrated a rejection of God. And we said that their rejection of God was not just in the fact that they wanted a human to be king over them, because God had promised long before in his prophets of old that he would raise up a human king for them as a blessing, not merely as a concession. But rather, the issue in their demand for a king was the kind of king that they desired. They wanted a king like all the other nations, or to put it in the language we have been using recently, they wanted a common king rather than a holy king. And then we noted that Israel was a holy nation and not a common one, and that meant that God had set them apart to enter his Sabbath rest by dwelling in his house and beholding his glory upon his mountain. And therefore, as a holy nation, they would receive in God's plan a holy king, not a king like the nations, but a king whose task would be to build the temple of God so that the people could commune with their God therein. But... In order for God to enthrone the king of glory in their midst, Israel had to complete the conquest of the land, and specifically the mountain on which God would enthrone the king and on which the king would build the temple. And yet they did not do so. They did not conquer the land, and therefore they did not receive the king. And so in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, Israel has still, when they come and approach and demand this king, they have still at this point in history not captured Mount Zion, and they still have no king, and they still have no temple. And so therefore, when they come and demand a king, like all the other nations, they are announcing that they do not desire to have a king who will rule on Mount Zion and who will not bring them to communion with the Lord. They do not, as we said last time, desire to enter God's Sabbath rest. Rather, they desire to chase their worldly pursuits, like all the other nations, and to have a man seated on a chair of some kind somewhere who will make it possible for them to chase their desire through law enforcement and military defense of the nation. They are despising, in other words, the opportunity to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And so our main conclusion and exhortation last time was that it is the height of wickedness to be content with what I called a sub-eschatological state of existence. That would be a state of existence in which you are not dwelling with and beholding the beauty and glory of the Lord forever. Now, that's our recap, and that is the explanation we gave last time of Israel's demand for a king. So now we're prepared to move forward in the chapter, and the rest of the text is going to show us how God responds to all of this, how he responds to Israel's demand, and the consequences that Israel is going to suffer for rejecting God. I've broken the sermon itself up into two parts. First, we're going to look at what I'm calling the ways of the judgment king. The ways of the judgment king. That's going to take up our exposition of the text where we actually walk through it. The second part of the sermon, we're going to look at something I'm calling the ways of God's king. So, let's go to the exposition. The ways of the judgment king. Now, I've broken the exposition up into two subpoints. First, we're going to look at God's response to Israel in verses 9 to 18, and then we'll see in verses 19 to 22, Israel's response to God. 
So then, God's response to Israel. We're going to begin in verse 9. I had originally put in a section where I went through God's dealings with Samuel in verses uh, 6 through 8, I believe it is, but I had to omit it for time's sake. But the summary of God's interaction with Samuel is this, that God wants to remind him that a servant is not greater than his master. And Israel had rejected Samuel and despised him because they had first despised God. And so in those verses, which we're not going to have time to cover, the, the Lord of all comfort gives a word of comfort to his prophet, Samuel. But starting in verse 9, God turns his attention away from Samuel and toward the rebels. And he has a word for them. And it is a word of judgment and wrath. And so he sends Samuel to inform Israel that the Lord does intend to give them something. But it's going to be something dreadful. And it's going to be the exact thing that they asked for. God commissioned Samuel with these words in verse 9. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them of the ways of the king who rule over them. So what we see there is God is going to give them a king. But it's not going to be the king of blessing that he had previously promised in those passages of the Old Testament that we looked at. At least not right away. He's not going to give them the king of blessing yet. But rather, verses 10 to 18 are going to show us that God plans to give Israel, in response to their sin, a king with all of the qualities and characteristics of the kings of the nations. He's going to give them a king like the nations. So before we get into the specifics of these verses and, and sort of show how this plays out in the history of Israel, I want to step back for just a moment and, and set our frame of reference by just looking at a few examples of what the kings of the earth are actually like in Scripture, in the post-lapsarian world. So then, we're going to look for just a moment at the kings of the fallen world. You may remember back in the Holy Common series, we, we introduced God's uh, institution of the civil magistrate in Genesis 4, and, and Paul recovered that in some of his confessional studies. I'm not going to recap all of that, but you'll just remember briefly that God promised Cain an avenger of blood upon murderers. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that language and describes the king or the magistrate as God's avenging minister. But what we see throughout the Bible, and really throughout all of history, is that even though God ordains the magistrates to be ministers in the common sphere, that very often the particular men who occupy those offices do not live up to the standard that God has set for them. And the basic folly of the kings of the earth is that they take the office that God has given them, which is supposed to be a blessing for the people and rendered in service to God, and use it instead to seek wealth and glory power and dominion for themselves. And we'll show you a couple examples from that from Scripture. We're going to begin with the first of the common kings that the Bible describes for us in some detail, and that's going to be the man Lamech. So I want you to turn with me for a moment to Genesis chapter 4. As you're turning there, you'll remember that Lamech is one of the kings that God raised up within the city of Enoch. That would be the city that Cain had founded for his dynasty. And what's striking about Lamech is the way that he takes many of the blessings of the common realm over which God has made him a minister, and he turns those things into a means of serving and exalting himself. Notice first that he perverts the institution of marriage. Take a look at verse 19 of Genesis 4. We read there, Lamech took two wives. 
He took two wives. Now, back in creation, God had ordained one wife for mankind. One wife was sufficient for Adam, and Adam was content with that, but not Lamech. His lusts go beyond what he can satisfy on the body of a single woman, and whereas ordinary citizens within his city may not have been so bold as to just go out and openly start taking multiple wives unto themselves, Lamech is a king, and therefore he does not see any higher authority in the human sphere than himself who can push back upon whatever he wants to do and keep his lust in check. In other words, it was the very power and office of kingship that gave him the arrogant presumption that he could do any of this, all of this, without any fear of reprisal or retribution. God had made Lamech a king, one of the purposes of which was to protect the institution of marriage amongst men to ensure that, for example, women were protected from abusive husbands with proper punishment and to defend the creational ordinance of marriage that man should not marry another man or multiply wives unto himself. He was supposed to enforce God's law in this area, but instead he uses kingship as an opportunity to pervert marriage for himself rather than to defend and enforce it. Next, he abuses the sword in the administration of justice. Remember that God told Cain that the king would enforce sevenfold vengeance on the evildoer, and and that was specifically in the context of giving capital punishment to murderers with the sword. But in the song that Lamech sings to his wives, he says this, I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. Now, that may not seem like kind of on the surface, like what is he talking about there? But think about this. God had established capital punishment for the crime of murder, the shedding of human blood. But Lamech does not see a need to be constrained by the limits that God has put on his office. He doesn't have to restrain his use of capital punishment to the crimes that God had instituted it for. He will instead execute people simply for crossing him or for doing anything whatsoever that he considers harmful to himself. And notice his arrogant statement of all this in verse 24. If Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, Lamech's is 77-fold. So his boast of 77-fold vengeance is a direct assertion that he is not bound by a God who would limit the administration of his office to a sevenfold administration of justice. Rather, he will up God ten times, as it were, going beyond the limits that had been placed upon him by the Almighty. And why is he doing this? Because in his mind, the position of kingship is not about executing God's justice, but it is about ensuring that his power and his control are maintained by any means necessary. And that is what tyranny has always been about, obsessively stamping out anything and anyone who the king thinks presents even the slightest threat to his rule and to his power. Consider another example. You don't have to turn here, but Pharaoh, another human king who abuses the office that God has given him. In Exodus 1, we read this. Just consider the actions of the king here. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to the people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come and let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies. Therefore, they set taskmasters over Israel to afflict them with heavy burdens. 
And so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel their slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of field work. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them slaves. Consider, God had put this man in this office for the people's well-being. But as soon as the Pharaoh thinks that the Israelites present any threat to him at all, what is his response? Slavery, brutality, and oppression. (coughs) And when he's afraid that that's not working, he ratchets it up to another level. And we read that then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, infanticide. You think of the example of the next Pharaoh who makes the people... Uh, construct bricks, but he won't give them any kind of straw or any materials to do it with just for the sake of being cruel and enjoying their suffering. Notice, it's not the poor Egyptian bread maker who's doing this. It is the king who is doing it because his office gives him unique powers and privileges and the opportunity for abuse that other occupations do not. Finally, there are many other instances, but I want you to consider one of the most violent and wicked dynasties known to us in the ancient world, the Sargonite kings of the Assyrian Empire. We read about one of them in Isaiah chapter 10. In this text, you may remember that God is bringing Assyria against Israel to punish the nation of Israel. But consider what God's word here reveals about how the king of Assyria views his task. What are the intentions of his heart? Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in the hands of my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath do I command him to take spoil and to seize plunder and to tread down in the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Has not my hand reached out to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria? Shall I not do to Jerusalem and to her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom. For I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples. I plunder their treasures. And like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. God is using the king of Assyria to bring wrath against Israel, but that's not how he views it. That's not what's in his heart. His goal is to destroy, and it's to capture nations, and it's to assert his superiority to the gods, and to demonstrate his power and his wisdom and his might by remaking the nations and their boundaries according to his pleasures. He doesn't view himself as a servant of God whose job is to help preserve the world until the coming of the Messiah. Kingship is all about him. It's all about him. And he doesn't care who he has to kill or what he has to destroy in order to get his way. That is the way of the kings of the earth. That's how they've always operated. And our Lord Jesus affirms that exact fact in the Gospels when he says this to his disciples. You know that the Gentile lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now, Christ is not just saying, you know that the Gentiles have kings who have some kind of power. 
That's exactly what God had established them for. Rather, Jesus is emphasizing the fact that the kings of the common realm take their authority and abuse it for their own self-glory, and those under their reign suffer terribly for it. Now, I trust that gives us a pretty clear picture of the ways of the kings of the earth. Self-exalting tyranny. And the sad irony of this is that the nation of Israel has experienced this exact treatment from these exact types of men many times in their history. So then having that biblical testimony of the ways of the kings of the earth sort of freshly in our minds, let's return to 1 Samuel 8. And now we're going to explore God's description of the king that he plans to give Israel in response to their rebellion. So then we look at next the ways of the judgment king. Now I'm going to argue here that verses 10 to 18 are are God's announcement that even though he's giving them a king, he's going to place a curse upon the history of that kingship. Rather than having the lasting reign of God's holy king and his righteous offsprings who will reign until the coming of the Messiah and who will bless Israel with the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant, the kings instead, with few exceptions, are going to be those who imitate all the ways of the kings of the earth. And in so doing, they will deliver the curses of the Mosaic Covenant to the people of Israel. Now, in his address to the people, God breaks up his description of the king into four categories, four specific areas into which the king will introduce hardship and curses for the people. And here are the four categories. Warfare, offspring, crops and flocks, and freedom. Let's look first at warfare. Look at verse 11b. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and his horsemen, and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment for his chariots. And the idea here is that the king is going to come in and he is going to utilize all aspects of Israelites' society in order to transform it into a military-industrial complex. Now, this was the standard procedure of the kings of the ancient world. You'll often hear historians referring to the Babylonian or the Assyrian or the Persian or the Roman war machine, right? What are they doing? They're recognizing that it was the way of the kings to take their societal resources and to turn it into a military conquering power that would go on the offensive in order to claim other lands and to heap up glory and dominion in service of the king. The very life and heartbeat and the calendar of the ancient world was fashioned around warfare. In the fall, for example, the men would, would uh, gather in the harvest and store it up for winter and through the spring so that the spring and summer months could be devoted to sending the men out for warfare, to conquer and to engage in empire expansion. And why was the society centered around offensive warfare? Because the king viewed the empire not as something that he was to serve, but as something to serve him, that he could expand himself. The kings did not just care about having soldiers and armies in order to defend what they already had against attackers. They wanted to go on the offensive and to capture other lands. And so in this verse, verse 11, we see that Israel's kings are now going to imitate this exact same self-exalting warfare. Verse 11 tells us that they will build chariots. Now you know that chariots in the ancient world were the symbol of military might and dominion. 
For example, when Pharaoh wants to reconquer the people of Israel as they are approaching the Red Sea, what does he send? He sends his chariots, his army of chariots. When the people get into the land to conquer it, we are told that the armies of the land came out against them as many as the sand of the sea made up of chariots and horsemen. But by contrast, Israel did not have chariots to defend themselves. They had to rely instead on God to give them victory in the absence of this kind of military technology. And that's why God said of the Israelite king in Deuteronomy 17 that he must not heap up for himself many chariots and horses. Rather, he was to rely upon God to give him victory. Because Israel is not a self-exalting military empire. They are a God-reliant, God-exalting kingdom. And their warfare was to reflect that. And so, in words that I trust that many of you will be able to recite off the top of your head, thanks to Paul, the psalmist says, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so the king was to rely on the Lord, and yet here God says that every aspect of Israel's society is going to be made to serve the king's military ambitions. Let's count the ways that Israel's society is going to be refashioned through warfare. First, we read that the sons of Israel will be conscripted into this warfare task on a large scale. It says, He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. Now consider what that means. That the sons are going to be taken from the work that they would have been doing otherwise in order to become professional soldiers. Can you imagine the impact that this would have on the economy, for example, and the kingdom flourishing within the land? The common nations were actually kind of at a disadvantage because half of their year was taken up where they had to leave their jobs and they had to go engage in warfare. But Israel was under God's protection. They did not have to have this kind of military complex. God promised to protect their borders. Yes, they had to engage in defense sometimes. But most of their time could be spent building the kingdom of God within the land and flourishing and prospering and building their homes. They didn't have to devote half their year to warfare like the surrounding nations, but no longer. Now their young men are going to be taken away. Those who are the most productive in society are going to be taken, and they're going to spend all of their energies in warfare to serve the king. Second, the text says that the king will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. Now God is taking that language straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 15. In that chapter we read, Moses speaking of his appointment of judicial uh, judges. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and I set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. So these commanders were originally not military men. They were judges. They were to serve the purpose of helping the peoples decide their disputes. They were a serving uh, role within the nation. But now the king is going to take their wisdom and their ability to engage in decision-making, strip them out of the judicial role of serving the people, and transform them into military commanders to expand his war machine. And so now not only the labor force, but the judicial system itself is all going to be uh, transformed and conscripted into the king's ambitions. Third, we read that he will take men to make his implements of war and equipment for chariots. Now, who, in, th in this time period, they don't have machines. If you want to make equipment for war, you know, the armor for the, uh, for the soldiers and the, the, the chariots and all of those things, what do you have to do? You have to make it by hand. Not everybody can do that. 
Who are the kinds of men who would be skilled at working with their hands and be able to do that? They would be the artisans, would they not? The same kinds of people that God employed in the building of the tabernacle and the temple, those who had skill with their hands, those who at this time were serving the purpose of constructing uh, clothing and all types of provisions for the people, those who were putting their uh, skills to use in that area, are now going to be taken and they're going to be used to, to fashion all of the leather working and the metal working that is necessary to build an army. So now uh, that portion of society will be remade into the war machine. And when the young men aren't fighting or crafting war instruments, the text says that they're going to reap the king's harvest. Now, this is not the harvest that the king needs in order to uh, provide food for his dinner table for his family, right? You don't need a whole uh, nation of young men to, to get that much food for that small amount of people. Rather, this is speaking of the harvest that is needed to sustain an army. When the soldiers go out and as they are fighting in foreign lands and as they're traveling back, they've got to have food. Hungry soldiers are worthless soldiers, and so you have to store up a lot of food in order to support this kind of operation. And so now the whole uh, sphere of the young men's labor is going to be put into harvesting so that they can feed the troops. So in all of that, do you see what God is saying? The warmongering of the kings of the earth is coming to you, Israel. And now every aspect of your life and of your culture is going to be centered around the seasons and the cycles of warfare as your king pursues his ambitions at your expense. And we see that played out in the subsequent history to a T. One of the most common ways that the writer of the book of Kings ends his description of someone's reign is by noting their warfare. Let me read you just a sampling from just the first half of the kings in Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and how he warred, are they not written? And there was war continually between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel. And Basha conspired against Nadab and struck him down. And Ella, the son of Basha, began to reign. And Zimri, commander of his chariots, conspired against him and killed him. Now Ahab warred with Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and how he warred are they not written. So Joram, son of Ahab, mustered all of Israel and marched out to war against Moab. Then Joram rose up with all his chariots and passed over and struck the Edomites in war. And Ahaziah went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hazael. And that's only halfway through. It gets worse after that as these men begin to sort of assassinate each other in these repeating cycles and their desperate attempts and lusts for power. So... That is the first and the longest area in which Israel's kings will introduce a curse and a snare to the people. All of Israel plunged into a life of horror and war because of the selfishness of these men. The second area that Israel will experience curses at the hand of the king is in regard to their offspring. And we just read about the wars of the king and how they consume the whole life of the nation. But once again, notice who's going to fight these wars? It's going to be the young men, isn't it? Now, God had given Israel a great promise. If you will obey my voice, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb. And the blessing of their offspring would run through specifically the promise that their seed would get to inherit this special promised land, that the Israelite men would give birth to sons who would then become possessors and inheritors of that which their father had. Well, now the king is going to introduce a tremendous curse into this area because through these constant wars, 
many young men will die. Therefore, the preeminent inheritors of the land, the preeminent ones through whom the blessing of God upon Israel would flow, instead of inheriting all of their father's goods and passing on the name of their father, will instead find themselves lying in a pool of blood somewhere in a foreign land. And the curse of the, of the seed even extends to the daughters. Psalm 128 says that the man blessed by the Mosaic covenant will have a wife who is like an all, uh, a fruitful vine within his home, and his children will be like olive shoots gathered around his tables. Sons and daughters living in service of their parents and in harmony with them, but not with Israel's king. Now the daughters will be removed from their service in the homes of their parents, and they will serve as the king's bakers and his perfumers. All of their labor and blessing taken from their father's house and given to the king, because the king wants comforts, and he will have them. And so their sons will die for him, and their daughters will pamper him and praise him. The blessing of the offspring stolen from Israelite parents. The third area in which they will experience a curse is in their crops and in their flocks. God has said to Israel, Blessed shall you be in the field, and blessed shall be the fruit of your ground and of your cattle and of the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Now, the fruit of the land in Israel was a reward and a blessing upon the people, but not any longer, for now the king will have his hands directly in the people's livelihoods. He will take of the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards and give them to his servants." Now, the servants spoken of here are in all likelihood not the, the menial servants who scrub the king's palace floor. Instead, these are probably his nobles, his officials who work alongside of him. And so now an Israelite, rather than taking the fruit of his labor in the field, and rather than taking the firstborn of his flocks home to his family for them to enjoy, will instead find the king's henchmen coming to pry them away from his hand and he, rather than feeding and supplying his family in the fullness of what he could, will instead be feeding the king and all of his cronies, all of his henchmen. And we see the climactic expression of this self-entitled attitude to the people's things in the murder robbery by King Ahab of Naboth and his vineyard. Remember, he saw Naboth's vineyard, and he simply wanted it. So what did he do? He had him executed so that he could take the people's stuff. And then notice a fascinating little detail here. We read that the king will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards. And in verse 17, he will take a tenth of your flocks. Now, the Hebrew word for tenth is literally tithe. They are one and the same. And you'll remember that in the law, Israel was to give a tenth or a tithe to whom? To Yahweh, the tenth. The first portion off of their increase was to be God's. But now the king will step in, and he's going to want his cut as well. He also desires a tenth. And so by demanding this portion, the king is saying that he wants God's peace for himself. The kings of the earth have always taken what was rightfully the people's, their money and their worship, and appropriated it for themselves. And so now Israel is still going to owe God his tenth. God's demands on them have not changed. But now they're going to have to give 20% because the king's going to want his tenth as well. And so here you have a nation. Consider the, the foolishness of this. Here you have a nation living in the ancient world where the entire focus of your existence is based around trying to get just a little bit of food to come out of the ground so that you can know where your next meal is coming from. They don't have 
grocery stores. And if just a little bit in the climate changes, you could be subject to famine and your entire family to starvation. And the God of the universe who controls the seasons and the cycles came to you and he made a covenant with you that if you would obey and love him, he would control the outcome of the weather within your nation so that your crops and your uh, fields would produce abundantly beyond what could be attained through the natural course of farming. All you had to do was love and obey him. The nations surrounding Israel would have given anything to obtain that promise. And they tried everything they could think of. That's the whole point of half of these gods, where they're performing these sex rituals and where they're, where they're cutting themselves. They're trying to get the god to control the weather to bring the food out of the ground because they can't control it for themselves. And yet Israel has a promise from God that they'll get that. All they have to do is obey. And yet here they demand a king like all the other nations. And now they're going to have the curse on their flocks and on their crops reintroduced into their existence. All they had to do was worship and obey the Lord. And so now the very means that God intended to be a blessing for them will come with a sting of bitterness as the king's henchmen pry the work of their hands from their grasp. Finally, the fourth category into which the king will introduce curses is in regard to their freedom. God had redeemed Israel from what? Slavery. These people were slaves. He had given them freedom. Pharaoh was a cruel and a hard taskmaster, but their loving God had told them in Deuteronomy, if you'll just obey, you will be slaves to no one. You will lend to nations and have to borrow from no one. You'll have everything you need. No foreigner shall rule over you. They would have total freedom under God to love him and to obey him. But Samuel ends his description of the curse of this king with these sobering words, and you, Israel, will be his slaves. So far he had spoken of their sons and their daughters and their fields and their cattle. But now he turns the arrow right upon their own hearts. You will be his slaves. And we see this exactly manifested in the man Rehoboam, Solomon's son. You remember that the people come to him and they say, Listen, your father was was a good man, but he did make us work very, very hard in the building of that temple. Would you please lighten the burden off of us just a little bit? And he takes counsel with his young wicked men and he returns to the people and he says, you think my father was cruel? My father's right thigh has nothing on the weight of my little pinky. He disciplined you with whips. I'll whip you with scorpions. In other words, you're going to be my slaves. You whip slaves. You don't whip your peers. That's exactly what Israel got because of their rejection of God. So that's God's response to Israel. He's going to give them exactly what they asked for, a king like all the nations, and they're going to suffer terribly as a result. Next, we see Israel's response to God in verses 19 to 22. I want you to put yourself in the position of an Israelite who is listening to all of this. Samuel has denounced your rejection of God and your whoring after creaturely comforts, and he's also told you that God is going to use the king that you are convinced will bring you all of the blessings that you're seeking in your earthly affairs, and instead, God is going to turn it into a curse upon you. What would be the rational and proper response at this point? First, it would be turning away from your sin, of course. But even if Israel simply wanted to act in their own selfishness and have no regard for God himself, 
If God has just guaranteed you that if you get the king, you're going to suffer, would you not step back and say, okay, this is the God who controls all things. He's told us this will happen if we get what we're asking for. Maybe we ought to try a different approach to getting what we want. Maybe we ought to back off of this demand. But how do the people respond to God's warning? But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we may be like the nations and that our king may judge us and fight our battles. Complete irrationality. And the reason for that is that sin makes men stupid. It makes men foolish. Psalmist said that in his sin he was like a beast, an unreasoning animal before the Lord. When men are blinded by their sin, they do not act rationally. This entire uh, interaction reminds me of the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember there that the angels are taken into Lot's house, and the men of the city come, and they want to fornicate with the, men, with the angels. And so they bang on Lot's door, and they say, give us the men, give us the men. And Lot says, no, please don't do this. And the angels respond by doing what to the people of the, of the city? They strike them blind. Now, if you and everyone around you were just struck blind as you were pursuing some sinful ambition, would you not at least hesitate and say, wait a second, wait a second, this is totally unusual. Might we ought to stop and think? But the text says that in response to being struck blind, they groped harder to find the door. Why? Because they're enslaved to sin. And sin makes people crazy. It makes them its slaves. And so the people don't stop. They don't relent. It's exactly what we have going on here. And so, in response to their doubling down, we are told that they will get the king like the nations. And that ought to make us shudder. Because to be like the nations, brethren, is to perish like the nations. It's like God said to the kings of the earth, I have said ye are gods, nevertheless you shall die as men. And so in a sobering close to this whole episode, God confirms their judgment by telling Samuel this, Obey their voice and make them a king. So there you have it. Those are the ways of the king who's now going to reign over Israel. God's made it very clear. But now as we move into the last portion of the sermon, I want you to consider for a moment the predicament of faith that this scene might have created for a believing Israelite. Imagine being a faithful Jew, circumcised in flesh and heart, and as you've grown up, I trust, we would trust, that you have heard the prophecies of Jacob and of Balaam and even of Hannah's prayer, where they prophesy this king of blessing who is going to come, that God will raise up a king, a horn of salvation who will wield the scepter and bring forth justice and who will crush your enemies and usher you directly into the presence of God. And having set your hope as a regenerate man or woman upon that king and on those promises, now all of a sudden in this text you hear God speaking through Samuel and he seems to contradict all of the previous promises. Now Israel is not going to have a king of blessing. They're going to be cursed with a cruel, tyrannical, and self-serving line of kings. Now how do you put those two pieces together if you're an Israelite? Those older promises are still written down. They're still valid in theory. And yet now God seems to be contradicting them. 
And if it were difficult enough for you to figure, sort of put those things together in your mind in Samuel's day, imagine being a regenerate Israelite in Zechariah's day. 500 years have gone by since this text. And now you can look back and you've got five centuries worth of evidence that what God said about the kings would be true. You've suffered under evil king after evil king after evil king. And now all of a sudden those prophecies of the king of blessing from 1,800 years prior seem to have been drowned out by this never-ceasing wickedness from Israel's warring, self-centered rulers. And yet, it's just in that moment, in Zechariah's own day, that God gives him a word, and he picks up that ancient strand of kingly prophecy, and he renews it again. Listen to his words. So Zechariah proclaimed, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah's prophecy, in other words, of the coming king is an announcement that God's promises have not been rescinded, that he still intends to fulfill exactly what he promised early on in the Old Testament, that he will give his people a true holy king to reign over them. And how appropriate that in his prophecy, Zechariah emphasizes the exact features of this coming king that make him to stand in the clearest of contrasts to all of the kings that Israel had been suffering under. He's humble. He comes to bring things to the people. Justice, peace, prosperity. He's not like the warring kings of the earth who seek to, to uh, get glory for themselves at the expense of people. And you know, of course, that the Word of God tells us that the Lord Jesus is the one of whom Zechariah spoke as he enters in to the city of Jerusalem, the city of the king, on a donkey, riding to his crucifixion. So what I want to do now, in the, the last few minutes we have, is I want to consider the ways in which King Jesus is the true embodiment of the selfless servant king who at every point we can conceive of him is the exact antithesis of the kings of the common realm. And so then, we come to the ways of God's king. How is God's king the opposite of all of the wicked kings of the earth? Well, we're going to take his, his existence from as far back as we can conceive of it and trace it all the way through into eternity. First, I want you to consider the king in his pre-incarnate glory. Because it's here that we first encounter the selfless nature of our king before he ever clothed himself in flesh. Unlike the tyrants of the earth who have their thrones given to them at a point in time in their lives, our king has been ruling from all of eternity as the royal divine son. And I want you to consider the glory that was inherent in his pre-incarnate reign. In the depths of all eternity, the Father had delighted in him 
And the Spirit had reflected and magnified His glory throughout the Godhead. The only thing that existed in the universe, which is a, a contradiction in terms. God is not the universe. But I can't even come up with language to describe the existence of God outside of time. And when this one, this king, began to create, the angels sang in wonder as he brought forth the planets and the galaxies and all the wonders of the created world by the word of his power. He had been the crowning jewel and the delight of everything that had ever existed in God, in heaven, and in all the created realms, which sang his praises. His glory radiated through the eternal spirit was the unapproachable light in which the triune God was pleased to exist. The sight of his pre-incarnate throne was set up of old within the deep recesses of his perichoretic indwelling, the mutual indwelling of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That was the sight of his eternal reign. In other words, God had been his dwelling place in all ages. He dwelt within God. He inhabited glory, and he wrapped himself in royal robes of the divine light of the essence of God. He was self-sufficient, almighty, all-powerful, all-wise, all-glorious, not lacking in anything, the fullness of all perfection, the one to whom literally nothing could be added to make him more complete or more excellent. And yet, when the counsel of the triune God determined that his kingly reign over the sons of men had to be won by relinquishing that exalted glory and exchanging his regal robes for the likeness of sinful flesh. So compassionate, so humble was his heart toward his people that he said, yes, I will go, for my delight has ever been in the sons of men. Now think about that. In your eternal glorified state. There's going to be nothing that anyone could offer you, even theoretically, that would convince you to lay aside your existence in that glorified state and return to a sin-stricken earth for even one minute. There's nothing that could be offered to you that will make you be convinced that that is a worthy and worthwhile thing to do. And yet the king of heaven, who inhabited glory from all of eternity, was moved to give it up to divest himself of the outward form of his glorified existence so that he could come and rescue his sheep. Because I says, he says, I love them. I must have them. I will not let them perish. And so the apostle tells us that he emptied himself of all of the vestiges of his external visible glory in heavenly places. Now, the kings of the earth are known for their pomp and their regalia, all of the fancy things that they adorn themselves with in order to draw attention for themselves. They don't want to be seen out in public without it. And yet Christ emptied himself of something infinitely more glorious than the greatest robe that a human uh, weaver could come up with so that he could be made like unto his brothers and have no outward form that we should even desire him. What an incredible condescension. Even in his pre-incarnate state, the king's heart was always toward his people. And so it's no surprise then that throughout his state of humiliation, throughout his incarnation, he manifested that same humble and servant-like deportment. Consider now the king in his birth. How amazing is it that the king who defines and inhabits eternity should make his grand entrance onto the world stage by choosing to be born 
in a town so insignificant that when Joshua was naming all of the cities of the tribe of Judah, didn't even mention Bethlehem as amounting to any worth whatsoever. He, did, he omitted it from his list. And think about how many cities are in that list in Judah, most of whom we've, we, we have no idea about to this day. They don't ever appear again in the Bible. And yet so insignificant was Bethlehem that it didn't even make that list. And yet that's exactly the place that Jesus chooses to make his entrance. That city was good enough for the meek and humble king of creation. How about the announcement of his birth? When an heir to the throne in the kingdoms of men is born, what do they typically do, especially in the ancient world? They send forth heralds, those who have powerful voices to go to and fro within the streets and all throughout the kingdom to announce the heir has been born. And they especially want the rich and the powerful to know about it. Why? Because the heir is the king's own means of propagating his name and his glory even beyond his lifetime. The heir is all about the heir is all about the selfishness of the king, really, in many ways. And yet when the heir of all things, not just a simple kingdom on the earth, but when the heir of all things came forth to draw his first breath, he sends his heralds, the angels, to make proclamation, not to the great and mighty of the society, but to those who could do nothing for him, to the shepherds. Those shepherds had no access to the mighty and powerful structures of society by which they could make Jesus known throughout the world. They could do nothing for him. And yet so humble and others-centered was his demeanor that he simply brought the message of his birth to those shepherds that they might rejoice in the ability to see God wrapped in flesh, lying in a manger, that he could bring that blessing to them. And even as he lay in that manger, surrounded by the smell of animals, Redemption had already begun because in that moment, he was already heaping up a reward of eternal obedience and righteousness that would be imputed to you and I. Jesus' obedience to the Father, which we inherited and did not begin when he began his public ministry at the age of 30. It was throughout his life. If he disobeys, we've said it before, if he disobeys one time, his parents as a child, we're lost and we're undone. That means his entire life, going back to the moment of his birth, is contingent upon his not committing a single sin. And his entire existence was submitted in service to us that he might obey the law and fulfill it on our behalf who had broken it time and time again. Even before he could speak, the king's rule was already working toward the service of his subjects. How about the king and his ministry? Once again, we see the contrast between the cruel kings of the earth and King Jesus. You know that man's kings view their subjects merely as assets that can be used for their own interests without regard to the well-being of their citizens. And yet the king of the ages, in his ministry, gave himself to the task of meeting man's every need that he had as a result of his fallen condition. Has the fall brought sickness? He heals the fevers and cleanses the leper. Has the fall cursed man's bodies? He opens the eyes of the blind. He makes the lame to walk. He opens the mouths of those who can't speak. He heals discharges of blood. He makes a withered hand whole. He opens the ears of the deaf. Has the fall made the procurement and sustenance of food difficult? He multiplies loaves and fishes. Has the fall made the natural world hostile to man? 
He calms the waves and controls the oceans and the winds. Has the fall condemned man in God's sight? He tells the man on the mat, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Has the fall made man subject to the torments of the evil one and the spirit of the age? He torments the demons. Has the fall brought death? He raises men's bodies from the grave. Has the fall condemned us to return to the dust? He washes dust off of men's feet. Has the fall alienated us from the means of salvation? He brings knowledge and wisdom, and He shows us the way back to the Father. A full Christ, in other words, for the fullness of man. There's no need that we possess that He did not meet in His ministry. Every aspect of this king's reign brings blessings to fallen men. As the hymn says, He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. And He does it all in a lowly state. Again, with no visible glory that mankind should look and say, oh, that, that's clearly the king of the universe. The kings of the earth know nothing of this kind of rule. How about the king and his warfare? The kings of the earth use violent warfare to glorify themselves. And yet this king's struggle was not first and foremost against flesh and blood, but first against the heavenly rulers and authorities and the prince of the power of the air. And isn't it fascinating that in his confrontation with the great dragon, the serpent offers this king, King Jesus, the opportunity to claim all of the kingdoms and realms of the world for himself, to unite them all under his own banner. This is the dream of the empire-building kings of the common realm. They spend decades and countless lives and resources pursuing the expansion of their rule and the conquest of the nations. And here... Satan offers it to Christ in exchange for merely a bowed knee. That's all it's going to take, and he says he'll give it to him. But in addition to our king's perfect love and submission to his father, our king also never acts without the good of his people in view. And if he bows, if he bows, leaving aside the possibility of whether Christ and God could sin, but if he bows, there is no salvation for us. Because there's no positive righteousness to give us. He will not have obeyed God in all things. And so even though Christ knows it's going to cost him his life if he turns this down, and it's going to cost him a tremendous amount of suffering, he refused to give in to the temptations of Satan in his warfare because he desired that we should come and be with him. No human tyrant would ever make that decision. History shows us again and again that they will push forward tens of millions of their own subjects to the slaughter if they think that it will gain them temporary control of a single earthly kingdom. And yet the Lord Jesus would not give up one of his sheep for an ounce of glory in this world. And so even his warfare is a blessing to his people. It's not a curse. Next, the king and his death. The kings of the earth send others to die in their place and to advance their kingdom, and yet no Greater love hath a man than this, that he would lay down his own life for his people. And King Jesus so desired the well-being of his subjects that he died on behalf of those who by nature should have been serving at his feet. And even as he went to his death, he went in humble fashion, riding a donkey, not opening his mouth. And we even see him doing things like 
keeping his mother in mind as he yields her into the care of John and desiring the unity and the faithfulness of his disciples. As he faced the wrath of God, Isaiah tells us that in the midst of that, he still was able to see his offspring, all of his people, and be satisfied. Now, I can promise you that if I were staring down and experiencing the eternal weight of God's wrath, there would not be a single other human being on my mind in that moment. It simply wouldn't happen. And yet when the outpouring upon Christ of God's wrath was at its most furious intensity, he could not get his mind off of his people. What selflessness. No man can imitate this. What man is so compassionate that while his lips are wrapped tightly around the cup of God's wrath and while the bitter fruit of it is deep within his throat can simultaneously be dragging thieves and centurions with him into paradise. The kings of the earth just wanted to execute men like the thief on the cross. They didn't care about them whatsoever. And yet Christ won't even yield up his spirit until he saves him. Have you ever known a king to rule like that? If you judge the weightiness of an act of service by the hardships required to render it, you'll not find a more impossible set of circumstances in which to still be serving than the man Christ Jesus hanging on the cross under his Father's wrath. And yet he did it, because that's who he is. Finally, consider the king in his ascended glory. We've talked about his lowly estate, his humble estate. We know that didn't last. He was glorified. And yet, even in his glory, As he rides on the clouds of heaven from Daniel 7 and he receives the kingly dominion that is rightly his and he takes the throne as the Lamb who is the conquering, incarnate, ascended, and mediatorial King of glory to whom every knee will bow and through whom the divine glory will manifest itself into all of creation. Even at his most glorious state, yet his reign is still found in his service to his people and his bestowal of blessings upon them. Because through all eternity, in his glorified state, he will never cease to make intercession for you and for I. He has covenanted not just to bring us to glory, but to keep us and to sustain us there forever. If a million years into eternity, Christ were to cease to fill God's nostrils with the aroma of his crucified flesh and blood, we would be lost. But as he said in John 10... No one shall snatch them out of my hand, and they shall never perish. Never. That's a statement of all of eternity. That can't be true if there's a time in eternity when he ceases to serve his people and to keep them in the presence of the Father. We will have been lost. He can't say they'll never be lost unless it is assumed that he will be in service of his people for all of eternity. That is what Christ has done for us. What a man. Servant of all. And yet he will be served by all. What a mystery.